Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I'm going to tell you something, people. This past weekend, we had what they call a nor'easter back here in New Jersey. And we didn't get hit as bad as, like, Boston and the other places. But I always love when this happens because all my friends from L.A. feel like they have to rub it into me on Facebook. They have to sit there and go, hey, Coop, Coop, hey, it's 80 degrees out here or this or that. And I just want to say this to them. I love you all, but here's the deal. My mortgage, yes, mortgage, not rent, is one-third of yours in L.A. I get good pizza. Gas is a dollar cheaper. I don't wait an hour and a half to go six miles. And there's not homeless people every, every other other step. So I just want to say, guys, I love you, but calm down, L.A., okay? We, we got some cold weather. Our nor'easter lasted a day, and you guys have that all the time. Anyway, we have a wonderful show today. Uh, I actually uh, saw this... Uh, lady perform at the Greek a few years ago on a big 80s uh, show, and I remember I was, I was got tickets from Clive Farrington from When in Rome, who's been on my show, and she just killed it, and I started following her on Twitter, and she was glad enough to come on, and my guest is Katrina Laskanich. How you doing, Katrina? Hey, how you doing? Well, you, you made the East Coast sound really great. Uh, you, you had me at pizza, Steve. Oh, and well, you grew, no, you grew up in the U.S., but you live in England now. How is pizza over in England? I mean, is there people coming over? I mean, I saw someone is going to do, I grew up, I, I lived near Philadelphia. I know someone's going to Eng, to London and, and doing, they're opening a cheesesteak place. But do you get good pizza over there? Yeah, there's loads of good pizza. We've got the usual suspects, Domino's, etc., Pizza Hut, all of that. But if you go into Soho, uh, you can find some really nice, like traditional Italian places where it's the thin crust and everything you want from a really good pizza. And yeah, it's no problem whatsoever. But I do miss the big slice, the big kind of East Coast slice. I love it. Isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's so funny. I, I when, when I was coming, I was by Coastal for a while when I was first dating my girlfriend. And I, I went, we went to the Jersey Shore. And yeah, I got that big slice. And there's something about being able to fold over a slice with a, oh, little, yeah. with a, a little bit of grease drops out. You, you put the napkin on first. But there's something about that that you can't experience. And, it, and you're right. It's something that you miss. And it sounds so trivial. But it, I think a lot of it brings us back to our childhood or, you know, our teen years when we, you know, were around that. But it, it's just, it's a wonderful thing. Oh, absolutely. I mean... My mother used to make the best pizza, you know, roll out, make her own dough and roll it out and let the dough rise. And then the house would smell of pizza. There were six of us kids, and we were always asking for my mom's pizza for our birthday, which would be like a special occasion thing. And that's what really started my love of pizza. Just a, just a thin slice pepperoni, and I'm good. Yeah. So now you grew up in the States, but I believe you moved around a lot because you were a, a military family? My father was a colonel in the Air Force, and we lived in seven different places in America. I was born in Topeka, Kansas. Uh, because of his work, we then moved to California, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, Massachusetts, Nebraska. And then in 1972, when I was 12 years old, he got stationed in Germany for a few years, and in Holland for a few years. And in 1976, he got stationed in England, and that's why... That's what brought me here, and that's why I am in London today still. Now, I've talked to a lot of actors who have also been in military uh, families, and a lot of times they said, you know, for them going into an audition was always easy because when you go to a new 
town, like you went to so many different towns, you're always pretty much auditioning for a classroom. Did that help you later in your career, like when you started to get on stage? Because you were sort of used to being probably the new kid, so you always had to acclimate. Well, I think the thing about having a, a career in the music business, the, the way that it's similar to growing up in a military family is I always felt like we were in a bubble. We were my Because my family was large, we were always in this little traveling bubble that would live in a lot of different places. And then when you get on the bases, you're also in an isolated bubble. Like, for example, when we moved to England, I went to American high schools. And the same in Holland and the same in Germany. So you're, you're going around in a little bubble with other Americans. And when you get in the music business and you're on stage, that's another little bubble. I mean, you're very much uh, not really integrated with, with, a, with a big community of people. Whereas I think if you're, in, if you're making movies, I think you're, you're integrated with a larger group of people that group changes as the as the movie changes, as your work changes. But I think in the music business, you know, when, when I was in Katrina and the Waves, it was us and our manager who was married to the drummer. And that was our little bubble. We just, you're, you're pretty sheltered, you know, apart from the odd uh, interaction with fans or whatever. And the whole fan thing, I mean, back in the 80s, we didn't, to tell you the truth, we really didn't have very much to do with fans or or outside people, outside the group. I think now, because there's so much pressure to to be popular on the social media, um, you, you tend to spend a lot more time with fans, selfies, doing interviews, meet and greets after the shows. I mean, we never... We didn't even know. Meet and greet, you know, occasionally you would meet the record label. We used to call it Grin and Grip. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> it's, uh, I think, my, you know, my and my life now is very, very sheltered. I have a very small network of friends, and I have an English band that I work with. And we, we go around, we, we've created our own little bubble, and, and we go around in that. So my whole life has been... A series of bubbles. You know, it's it's funny you say that because you're right about the meet and greet. I mean, I remember when I was uh, young, I went to see the Doobie Brothers in Philadelphia, and I figured out where their tour bus was going, and I got two of their autographs on my ticket. But it was like something that you couldn't get to. But now you're right. Like after a show, you know, unless it's at a really huge venue, you, a lot of times they don't meet and greet. But even then, like at the Greek, you know, at the Hollywood Bowl. People were would the, yeah. the artists would hang out after, and it is something different for the fact that I think you know I'm a I'm a fan. I love music, but I'm someone who was in the entertainment business before, so I know how to act, and I talk to a lot of famous people. I know how to act to that, but I feel bad sometimes for the artists because not everyone is like me or like my girlfriend or people I know. Sometimes you have these. People are they're just crazies that everyone just wants to get a picture with you, and they can be sort of annoying. And I feel bad. I feel bad for the artists sometimes because it's come to that. There's an actual, I suppose you could call it a modern day phenomenon, and that is um, that's a, a, a selfie headache from really really bright. I don't know if you uh, you know Howard Jones. I think in fact you've had him on yes. your your show, Howard Jones won't allow people to take pictures of him with a flash because 
there was a correlation between a really, really bright flash and some blinding headaches that he was getting at night, and he couldn't sleep, and he had a lot of pain in the bottom of his head. And the doctor told him it was from really, really bright flashes from the, these these uh, cameras people are using. You know, especially the ones that take a a little. It 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 sort of I guess it triggers something so you don't have a red eye. It, it there's one flash, and then there's a huge flash, and so I think it's it's that's a modern phenomenon, uh, a, a selfie headache. But I think I think the trick is you have to if you're going to meet people. You have to just, I'm very aware of how much the people I'm meeting have had to drink because that breaks down a lot of barriers for people and they sort of grab you around the neck and pull you in and it's uh, it's sort of selfie time on their terms. And if they've had a lot to drink, it can kind of be a little bit of a, a concern if you're not really... Right. If you don't, you know, if you don't know somebody, then right. it's a little, it can, it can get a little scary. Yeah, I could imagine. I, I just, I see people at bars and I'm like, oh my God, you know, I, you know, I, I mean, I, I like to drink, but I, I know not, yeah. I know people, you guys need your space and a lot of people don't understand that. You know, I've talked to people who've like been at restaurants and someone will come up and be like, can we take a picture? And, and they're polite and they go, sure, but can I? eat first and people are like no 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 we want it now and I, I feel bad sometimes especially because back in the day you know if you took a picture there wasn't selfies you have to actually bring a camera and get the camera and develop it and now it's like if, if a celebrity doesn't look good in a in a picture it's plastered everywhere and you know like tmz is going to pick it up and it's, it's just it's weird being celebrity now I, I feel for the celebrities sometimes because it's just like you're always in the spotlight it's tricky because you you almost are being driven underground by the amount of exposure and the amount of damage somebody can do if they catch you catch you in the at a uh, at a bad moment or you're just stuffing a huge piece of pizza into your mouth. But the thing is, if you're not polite to people and you don't comply and you say, "Do you mind if I just finish my meal?" or "I'd rather you didn't take a picture," they'll go straight straight on the internet and say you're the world's biggest bitch and all you were asking for was a little selfie and then they'll compare you to somebody else who bent over backwards was obliging and offered you a, a bite of their pizza or it you know a lot of times it is a it's a popularity contest people don't want to say no because they're afraid of the uh, the repercussions so um it's it's kind of easier to to just get back in the bubble when you're done with the show well, a, a few polite meet and greets and then back in the bubble is a safe place to be. Now, how did you end up starting to get in this bubble? How did you start in a music business? Were you a kid? Did you play music? Or when did you think that I really want to play music? And, and what were some of your music tastes that you enjoyed when you were younger? My parents complied and bought me the wished for guitar when I was 14 years old. And I got the music books, Cat Stevens, Carol King, Fleetwood Mac, and I just learned the chords painstakingly, and then I was the one at high school who always had the cheap little nylon guitar with me, and we'd sit around, in the, usually in the smoking area, because the, the schools I went to were, they were American schools in Europe, but they were kind of very liberal. You know, they they gave us smoking areas and they gave us lounges where we could smoke. And it was also a place where 
if you had any ability, it would be where the guitar would come out and you'd start singing and playing. My parents had great ambitions for me to be a veterinarian or be an occupational therapist, using using music as an occupational therapist. But once I got in a band, it wasn't really for me. I put a band together when I was 16, and we played around the, the Air Force bases, and I was the manager of the group. I was playing completely illegally in these clubs. My parents found out about it, and when I reached the age of 18, I got the uh, ultimatum, and my parents said if I wasn't going to go back to uh, Kansas University, I was born in Kansas, and my mother's family were from Kansas, then I would, um, I'd have to leave the house. So effectively, I got kicked out when I was 18. I was washing dishes on the military base for five years while I was in and out of bands, the first one being called Mama's Cookin', where we played American rock music to American servicemen on the American bases. So we were very popular. Um, at that time, I was extremely influenced by Linda Ronstadt. I, it was so difficult back in the day to, to get anything but records about people. And I think she was on a movie, maybe it was No Newts or something like that. And I, I went to the military airbase um, cinema and I saw her performing, you know, on the, on the screen for just a brief, you know, this is before YouTube. I know it's hard for people to imagine. It was so difficult to try and see somebody you really admired and wanted to be like, but there was maybe 15 seconds of her singing on this, this movie. And I'll just never forget how, how moved I was by that and how very much I wanted to be her. I loved Bonnie Raitt, Patti Smith, Emmylou Harris, Nicolette Larson. I, I just was, was crazy about women singers who sang melodically and on the whole, most of them were from, the West Coast, and those were my first influences. Well, you know, it's amazing because you think back to that time, and you know, you mentioned some wonderful artists, but it's not like today where there's tons of women artists. As a woman, how did you sit there and say, you know what, I want to tackle this? Because it was sort of like a, a small club because record companies were very stuffy. They, you know, back then, you know, everything's changed. But as as a, as a young woman, and you're on the bass, how do you sit there and say? I want this, I'm going to accomplish this. I mean, there's more than just, you know, the bands you're putting together, but what was your uh, course of action? I had absolutely no idea about the uh, the misogyny that's in the music business, and it never occurred to me to not do anything but follow my dream. I never thought, well, there aren't a lot of women doing this, and I know it's going to be a hard road. I just did it because things fell into place for me and I loved it and I could do it and I did it well and it seemed to bring bring joy and and success and everything I needed to make a career doing it and I never ever really thought oh, people used to always ask me in the 80s what's it like to be a, a woman in the music business and I would I would say well this is the only this is the only experience I've I've ever had and so I wouldn't know what it's like for anyone else. I can only speak for myself. Again, I was very sheltered in Katrina and the Waves. I knew those guys very well. We went around as a, as a unit. 
we took care of each other. They took care of me. I was there was never any any situation. If there was any prejudice against me because I was a woman or hardship because I was a woman, we always felt that it worked in our favor. When we first started out, we were just called the waves, and someone from a very small label we were signed with said, why don't you, people don't know there's a girl in the group, and it's such a, it's an attract, something special. Why don't you call it Katrina and the Waves? You'll get a lot more people coming to your shows if they know there's a woman. And I guess we just thought the name was kind of fun, sort of like, you know, Josie and the Pussycats or anything in the anythings, you know, Martha and the Van Bellas. I thought, oh, cool, it can be like that. And it did give us attention and profile and interest from, from record labels and... There was a girl group called the Bangles. I know you spoke with Vicki Peterson. Right. And they they covered a song of ours called Going Down to Liverpool in the early 80s. And this is before we were signed with Capital. Uh, we didn't have any much going for us. We'd been signed by a small label in Canada called Attic. And we were just going from the East Coast to the West Coast and back, just playing in, in little clubs. The Bangles somehow got hold of our first album, of which we only made a thousand, and fell in love with the song called Going Down to Liverpool. When they covered it, it gave us the uh, well, the golden opportunity we were waiting for <clears throat> to be signed, because Col- uh, the Bangles were signed by Columbia, and Columbia traced the song back to Katrina and the Waves, and they thought, we've had success with a girl group here, Here's another girl. But they didn't like us. But it was Capitol Records who thought, oh, well, well, we we like you. And that's how we got our deal with Capitol Records back in uh, about 1984, we were signed out of L.A. Now, how, you know, I I listened to your your greatest um, hits album the other day. And you have a very, you have a very great voice. It's soulful. And it's, but it can also be, you know, softer. How do you know, I mean, how did you find out what your octave range is in your voices? At what age did you know that you have really have killer pipes? I didn't think about it. I just tried to go for as big a notes as Ann Wilson sang in Heart or try and sing as melodically as Linda Ronstadt did in You're No Good or try and sing as with as much soulful passion as Bonnie Raitt did in anything she did. I loved the girl groups, and I loved to sing melodically and unaffected. Now, when women sing, they sing through their noses. They put lots of extra stuff. I always just wanted to sing very, very melodically and clearly. For me, that was... uh, It's what I liked. I liked melodic double-track singing. I loved uh, Karen Carpenter. I just, I just really wanted to hear, I just really wanted to hear the tune come through. And I didn't, I didn't think I was being necessarily fancy. Although, if I had to break out and be soulful, somehow I found that somewhere inside me. But I don't, I don't know where. I mean, there are even recordings, early recordings of me in Katrina and the Waves. And 
if I'm going off on some ad-libbed bit at the end of a song, um, you can you can almost hear me laughing because I'm I'm kind of wondering myself where 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 it's coming from. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's a problem we'd all like to have. Seriously. So, so <laughs> now I'm thinking about it. You know, you were on the base. How did you form? How did the waves get formed? Because it's not. We talked earlier about social media. It's not like now where you can sit there online and go on Facebook and go, "Hey, I'm looking for a guitar player," and you'll get two thousand people wanting to do it. How did the waves form? How did you guys become a group? In 1976, when my father got stationed to into England. We were on uh, some base housing and not, if I can kind of set it up geographically, we were about three hours outside London in sticks where some military bases had been set up. They were called Lake and Heath and Mildenhall for any of your listeners who may have served there. My parents always insisted that wherever we moved, all of us six kids went straight up to the church and joined the choir or got involved somehow with the church. I think it was a way, because my parents didn't really go to church, they just sent us. I think it was a way for them to have a little peace and quiet of a Sunday morning. And when I joined a church in, uh, the little town was called Saltwell, I met another family called the Dela Cruzes, and there were eight kids in that family. I mean, this is what you get in these huge Catholic families. Right. And Vince Dela Cruz was the bass player in the Waves. So he and I dated, and then we put our first group together called Mama's Cook, and the one I told you about where we played around the bases. Later on, Vince and I, a couple of years later, we thought that we would move to America where we could have some more opportunities. Vince was from Texas, so we were going to go there. And out of the blue, I got a telephone call from a guy called Alex Cooper, an Englishman. And he said, I heard from a friend of mine who plays around the bases, lives around the bases, that you were a good singer. I'm, I want to put a band together with a girl. Okay, um, well, we can meet up. I don't know if it's going to happen because I'm moving back to the States with my boyfriend. And so I said, we'd have to be in on it together. So I brought Vince to the meeting and we all met Alex and we all got along and Alex joined Mama's Cooking. And Alex had been in a band with Kimberly Rue called, uh, well, they were called the, The Waves. And... Kimberly had just left the Soft Boys and was looking to put a band together with his own material. He needed a band. So Alex said, well, there's this girl, there's this American girl and guy I know, and we can put a band together with them. So we did. So it was quite a very, very odd combination of these two Englishmen and two Americans. And Vince, Vince and I, because we grew up on military bases, were very much American. And so there are some interesting culture clashes there. But we recorded some music with Kimberly Rue. He had written an album's worth. And I was singing backup, and Kim was singing lead. 
And later on, I think Kim didn't see himself so much as a front man because Robin Hitchcock had been the front man in The Soft Boys. And Kimberly thought I had a, a good voice and he would hand over the singing duties to me. So th from that point on, all the songs got written for me and I was the lead singer. And then, as I told you, somebody came along and said, why don't you call it Katrina and the Waves so people know there's a girl in the group. And that's kind of a... It's a bit of, it's a bit boring how we actually got together, but that is that's the story right there. Well, now when you became the front person, you know you you, you seem like someone who's you know as you said when you sang you just sang and you always had your focus. But did you feel added pressure when you become the front person and when the band is you and the waves? Is there an added pressure to you, or you just roll with it and say you know what this is what I want to do. This is a spotlight on me. I'm gonna I'm gonna crush it. I just absolutely went with it. I didn't think anything about it. I thought, well, that's great. If Kimberly's going to write some material for me, and a lot of the material was very, very specific, storyline specific, um, then I was quite happy about that. And it was, it worked. It was just, and Kimberly was very happy with it. And it, it inspired him to write songs like, um, Going down to Liverpool, Kate Quiero, Walking on Sunshine, songs like that that were had very melodic, worked for me very melodically in the verses, and then could go a bit soulful in the choruses. It was that was just the that was just the blueprint. That was the kind of the way we did it. Then I had had quite a lot of experience in my previous and Mama's Cooking playing to very raucous, uh, kind of out-of-control <laughs> GIs on a lot of these bases, Air Force bases, and we would be doing four 45-minute sets a night. So we'd do 45 minutes and then take a 15-minute break, and it just went on and on. I mean, it was kind of like the early days when people would do 10 sets at, up at the Apollo, and... So that's really, I think, where I learned to, you know, just get up there and because, I mean, GIs would be shouting, you know, get, take your shirt off and, you know, let's see your, you know, what you got. And they would be shouting, free bird, you know, sweet home Alabama and all this stuff. So playing in front of an English crowd that stood, stood there sullenly, quite sulkily sometimes, <laughs> not applauding, with their arms crossed in front of them, uh, was was another challenge in itself where I had to just kind of keep going thinking, they think I suck, um, because here's this American girl, and I didn't know how to dress or put it together or anything, and I, I kind of, I suppose, came across like somebody from a different planet. Um, it, was all, it was all a learning curve, but it was... Um, I kind of learned as I went along. I'm still learning, in fact. Well, that's good, though. I think, I think well, the music changes, and I think every, every artist grows a bit. Now, when you were playing with The Waves, when Walking on Sunshine came out, did you guys figure that that was going to be the single? And also, did you ever think that it is... Everybody knows that song. When you when you when you were you know performing that, did, I mean, how did you choose that to be the single, or was that not the original single on your album? We didn't choose it. 
Walking on Sunshine would have been way down the list. We knew that Walking on Sunshine was was catchy and had something, but out of all of our material, it was certainly more of a novelty piece. And when we were going around as the waves with Kimberly, Alex, Vince, and myself, we dropped Walking on Sunshine. We, we tried to do some, some original material, but we ended up dropping Walking on Sunshine because it was a dance floor emptier. Nobody knew how to dance to it, especially back in the day. I mean, you think when we were first starting, it was Joy Division and, uh, you know, it was, it was Blue Monday and the Eurythmics and, or, or even the tourists back then, Susie and the Banshees, really very serious kind of door music. And Walking on Sunshine was so, nobody wanted to hear that kind of music. They wanted to hear more serious, more monotone. Um, we dropped it. Then when we got signed by Capitol and we showed them all the material that we had, they said, okay, this one's catchy. Do You Want Crying is, is good. That's a good rock song. We'll go for Do You Want Crying as the first single. Um, Kate Caro, that's quite good. That's catchy. And Red Wine and Whiskey. Okay, that's a cool song. So we sent a demo around to all the radio stations, kicking off with Do You Want Crying? And I think the, the tape finished with Walking on Sunshine. Well, all of the DJs came back, and the feedback was, this is the song. This Walking on Sunshine, this is the song. Because it started with the drums, and it was every radio DJ's dream. Because they could talk over that drum intro, and it's instant party. The party has started, and it just, it, it shone a light on them. It, it put everything into fast gear. It brought a smile. Whatever the weather, it was going to lift you. It was going to, the sun was going to be out. And we were like, huh? <laughs> Walking on sunshine, really? You know, it's Do You Want Crying? It's this kind of really kind of cool, serious rock song. They said, nope, this is the one. So we changed gear completely. And from then on, the perception and what Capitol Records was driving about the group was that we're like the Pretenders, but with sunshine. We're like the Beach Boys, but with a female singer. We're like, you know, they wanted us to kind of be bright, and then the clothes kind of went bright, lots of smiling. I mean, we would never dreamt of smiling in any photos. You can find some obscure photos of the band in the beginning, and there's not a smile in sight, honey. We're taking this very seriously, and we are cool. But we used to go to photo sessions, and it'd be, hey, come on, you guys. Come on, you know, you're walking on sunshine. And Vince, our bass player, would always wear dark glasses. And they were like, hey, man, lose the, lose the shades, man. What, what is this? You guys, come on, let's, let's, you know, you're supposed to be walking on sunshine, having a good time here. And so, I mean, that was it. It was, it was set. <laughs> you know, it was very, very difficult to follow walking on sunshine. And people would say, all you need is another walking on sunshine. Well, we got a little bit close with a song called Sun Street on the second album, but what people didn't even know about that was it was a, it was a song about an opium den. 
But anyway, that was kind of our, our little joke. But um, once Walking on Sunshine, once the DJs got hold of it, and it got in lots of movies, they was used in movies at the point when the plot changed and things that had been going bad suddenly there was a turnaround and so it was it was kind of used as a as a plot marker for when things started to go well it was used in commercials for everything from diapers to uh, antihistamines i mean <laughs> there was no escaping the song so that was us that was it but when it when it became popular though, it, it upped your up your uh, people knowing you. Did you get to go on some really cool tours because you were a popular group? I mean, you know, you're you're newer, but I'm, like, who were some of the people that you opened for in the very begin uh, in the beginning when that song became big? Well, right away it was very structured planning to get us on the same bill with. Well, we did the Wham tour. You know, Wham were just huge and on this tour was wham the pointer sisters shaka khan and katrina and the waves and that was a it was a dream bill you know there were all these fabulous women singers and uh, and george who was just um irresistible and and i mean what a summer that was our first tour our second tour was with Don Henley, and Don had just, Don broke big with uh, Boys of Summer, um, God, that album was, was huge, and song after song, he had hit after hit, so we, we toured with him, then we toured with uh, the Beach Boys, that was a kind of a marriage made in heaven, so we could be, I don't know, it was just really good billing, I think, the Beach Boys and and the waves and then uh, after that we toured with Fleetwood Mac uh, the Kinks um, Billy Ocean you can kind of see where I'm going <laughs> yeah well see it's, it's, as, the, an, as an artist frogs, even. as an artist though that must be awesome just to watch these legends I mean you know any you know we always say we learn from you know different people and it must have been great for you guys because one the, you know you're going to get good crowds because they, they know they're artists. They're going to, you know, you're paired with them for a certain reason. It must be great as an artist to sit there and go, you know, we're going to a place that we know that the crowd's going to be cool. Well, you have an instant crowd because they belong to somebody else, basically. And you have a short set. So it's not, it, it, it's easy. And a, a, a fundamental thing is, the catering is really good. <laughs> and if, if you're staying in the same hotel as to the lead band, then you're staying in nice hotels. You know, so it was, and, and your tour bus is nice. So it was really fun and we enjoyed doing it. We, we didn't even do that many shows where it was just us because we just, we, we kind of loved the, the journey of supporting somebody else. And, um, and having the fun of that, because it was always important for us to have fun. I don't think we ever even toured the UK, for example. I'm about to tour in the, in the autumn, and I just realized this is my prob probably my first tour of the UK. Now, are you excited about that? 
Well, it's going to be it's going to be hard work, and it's going to be you have to. Here's where you have to put on your 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 big girl outfit because this is where I'll be playing my material, material I've written, old Katrina and the Waves material, and uh, a, a few covers in between, um, and hope that that's all good enough to keep an audience sustained and happy and make them feel as if they got their money's worth. So. It's a little bit scary, but I don't want to just sit around and, I mean, I, I do an awful lot of work right now, but a lot of it is is retro work. There's a huge 80s scene in Europe. I know there's one in America as well, because I did Retro Futura for a couple of years in a row. I think, uh, Steve, you were saying that you went to a show at the Greek. Was that the re- Retro Futura? Yes, it was, it? it was uh, you... It was Howard Jones. It was uh, Thomas Bailey from the Thompson Twins. Um, yes. China Crisis, which I I wasn't really familiar with, and I'm a big '80s guy. And Mitch Mitch Orr. So, and it was a great oh, show. Yeah. And it was funny because I had met Clive Farrington from When in Rome, and he had tickets, and he gave me tickets to that, and he gave me tickets to Yes. And it's funny when me and my girl, I love Yes, but me and my girlfriend went to Yes. It was a crowd. I always like to say of a bunch of. Dudes in concert shirts with ponytails, and when you right. went when you went to the retro future, it was just it was a, a fun crowd because I think you know everyone forgets that you know the eighties were such a fun time, and now us fans of them still love the music, and we're just older and more responsible, and we have money. Yeah, the crowds that go to the eighties shows are full on fun and they love and remember the songs because they're so melodic and it was easy to access music because it was on VH1 and it was on MTV and it was on all of the stations. Now you have so many stations, people are accessing music from different areas so it's not so much a communal experience. You see, listening to music in the 80s was a communal experience because everybody was listening, everybody heard the same songs. And that's what people, they come to the shows and they want to relive that and they just, they can't seem to get enough of it. And what's what's great about that is that I'm still able to work. I didn't write Walking on Sunshine, so I don't have 12 swimming pools. And so I do I do work. I need to work. And it's just as well because for somebody like me who has too much time on her hands, it could, uh, I might look for recreation in all the wrong places. So it's good for me to work and be busy and I enjoy it. And as long as there are audiences there who are, smiling and appreciative, it's a great job. It's a great job. Well, I think what's great also is, you know, and I talked to a lot of artists about this, is, you know, when someone now, when we when we go to a show and see you, and it's music that we, 
you know, listen to it. I listened to it in college. And now it must be great for an artist when people bring their kids because, you know, I don't have children myself, but I know, you know, my friends who, you know, we talk about music with their kids. It must be great for an artist to see that your music passes down to another generation and that will probably pass down to the another generation because kids, if they like something that their parents like, will always listen to it. And I think that, um, I don't think I'm wrong in saying that Walking on Sunshine has been around the block so many times that it's a pretty safe bet you've heard it in your lifetime, whatever your age. I mean, I just saw now that it's being used for some ad for Applebee's. Right. It just, it never, it never ends. And if I meet someone from the younger generation and I explain what I do, Katrina and the Waves pretty much goes over their head. But if I say Walking on Sunshine, then it reads. Well, now, when you broke up, when the band broke up, when you went solo, what was it like when you were going to go solo? What was, you know, because you're known for that song, you're known for the Katrina and the Waves, but now you're Katrina. What is it like when you're sitting there and you're branching out on your own? What what kind of music did you decide you wanted to play? When Katrina and the Waves split 20 years ago, we had different ideas about what would happen with our future after we won something that a lot of Americans don't understand. It's called the Eurovision Song Contest. And I think it's difficult for some people to know what it is, and I'm not going to even bore you with what it is exactly, but uh, a competition between all the European countries for the best song. And we managed to win it. It's quite a big deal in Europe. After that win, there was a very much a difference of opinion in what we wanted to do as a band. And I was offered work for BBC Radio, which I was very excited and happy to try and do. And I did that for a year. And I did some musical theater work as well, which I thought was stimulating and interesting to branch out and do. But unfortunately, it left the boys twiddling their thumbs and there wasn't enough to do to sustain a band to keep it together. So we decided to go our separate ways. And it took me a little while to uh, to regroup and start making my own music and put together my own bands. And I say bands because I put together a North American band and I put together a Scandinavian band because uh, I've done quite well in Scandinavia and put together a UK band and it's, uh, it's been quite a long process actually trying to get that together it's um, it's just something that happened quite organically I'm quite a bit younger than the waves and I think we just had different ideas about what we wanted to do. So it's still a, a very fulfilling career, a much, much more hands-on with everything I do and responsible and conscientious. So <laughs> I have to be a grown-up now. I can't just uh, have a manager and, and be in a band. And I had to branch out of that little fun bubble and start kind of... Um, taking response, more responsibility. And, and finally, at the age of 57, I'm just about, just about there. Now, where do you, 
where do your songs come from? I mean, over, you know, when you, when you sit there and you write and, you know, where do they come from? Do they come from where you are in your life now or do they come from the past or do they come from maybe current events? Where is, where, where do you find material as a songwriter? Everywhere in things people say, in things I read, in things I hear in other songs and feelings I have about, uh, one, wondering if I'm brave enough to express things, wondering if I'm sort of uh, developed enough to be able to express things that I feel. So reaching, reaching for things. I wait for the goosebumps, wait for it to all come together. Sometimes you wait a long time sitting over an idea or a little piece of music and then other times it comes so incredibly quick. I believe that you haven't stolen it from somebody else. But I probably, you know, if you anybody else you talk to probably has a very similar journey. I think where do we find inspiration just from from our world? Now, you said you work with three different bands. As a performer, how is that? Because I'm sure when you're leading the band and you're in front, you have to trust the people behind you. But how is it to acclimate to three different bands? Because I'm sure one drummer may play a little different than another drummer because everyone has their own styles. How do you as an artist adapt to that? Well, work with good people and then let them interpret the songs how they will and let them do that. I have a very low boredom threshold and I don't like rehearsing. And so here, here are the songs. We get together, run them a couple of times, and I don't, I don't have a specific brief for how the songs should be if they're played well and everybody has the, the, the space to interpret as they like and wish and know and feel, then they can do that. It's, it's fine. I'm, I'm, not a, uh, I'm, not, I'm not a disciplinarian or a big taskmaster in the rehearsal room. I can't stand rehearsing, so you know, the, the sooner we can cut to the chase and get all the material onto the stage, the better. Now, every show, I mean, you play Walking on Sunshine, so I'm sure you have to, uh, but I know when your, your compilation album I listen to, you have a few different versions of that. How do you decide what kind of version you're going to do at the show, and what is your personal favorite version? Because there, you know, there's a more acoustic one, there's a more bluesy one, and uh, so how do you, what is your favorite, and how do you decide which one you'll play at a show? I always play the Capitol Records version of Walking on Sunshine, so that's the one that you, your listeners probably hear the most. Just the traditional three minute. 54 second version that's the one I play live and that's my favorite version now does it ever get tired I mean you know you sit there you know as you said you hear it everyone knows that song you're right and that must be something that everyone knows your voice I mean I just saw the Applebee's commercial the other day and I'm like to my girlfriend I'm like how oh, cool I'm interviewing her and uh, what is I mean for you what is it like when everybody knows your voice I mean it must be something where you know you probably don't go a day without hearing that song. Well, yeah. In fact, I, I turned on BBC Radio London yesterday, and I don't know if you know, but we were in, we're in the middle of a freak blizzard here in, uh, in the UK, and they were playing Walking on Sunshine, and it, 
it it makes me feel tingly, quite happy. Sometimes my heart will beat a little beat a little bit faster. I don't know if it's because it's me or because it's quite a good version of a song that is very exciting and and so well produced and mixed. Um, when I'm playing the song live, what's not to love? Or suddenly everybody's smiling and well, these days, of course, the phones go up. Right. <laughs> so it's it's always smart to kind of. I usually play Walking on Sunshine at the, at the end of the show for obvious reasons, but it's always worth sort of collecting myself, toweling down, um, and getting ready, because I know as soon as they hear that beat, the phones are going to come up, which is, uh, oh, there's still smiling faces behind the phones, so that's fine. Well, it bothers me about the phones because, you know, I mean, I grew up in the generation and I always laugh, you know, there's always a beach ball at a concert. There's always a smell of marijuana <laughs> and everyone had yeah. a, everyone had a lighter. Even if you didn't smoke, you had a lighter. Now I went to a concert mm-hmm. and people are holding their phones up, but with an app that is a lighter. I mean, as an artist, <laughs> it's crazy. As an artist, what does that do to you? Because you remember like when concerts were like, it wasn't, you know, I mean, I, I went to see uh on the, on the sunset uh, on Hollywood Boulevard, I'm see Van Halen when they played for Kimball. It was a free concert, and you sit there and everybody's recording it, and it's like, holy crap! Why don't you just watch the damn show? Because you, when you watch it later on your video and you post it, big deal. You're at the show. You're not going to enjoy it as much. What's it like as an artist when you do look out and you you see all these phones and and you must sit there and go, don't record me. It's a lot better than looking out and seeing nobody, and nobody <laughs> cares to, to film it or to get the lighter app. So, I mean, I really, I, I'll appreciate it. I'll take anything I can get. Now, now, Fake lighters, real lighters, <laughs> blow torches, I'll take it. Now, now, the solo tour you're coming up, you're going to, uh, how do you, how are you choosing what you're going to play? Like you said, covers. Like, what covers will you play? How do you decide what you want to play? There's a great Etta James song called Watchdog. I like to play that because it's kind of obscure. It's it's cool. And um, I like to play River Deep Mountain High. <clears throat> it's quite a a rocky a rocky version of that. Um, I do a good version for some 80s shows that I do. I do a, a very good version of uh, Billy Idol's Rebel Yell. <laughs> this you got to hear. And... Um, I like to do Echo Beach because the amount of people who, who used to come up to me, Echo Beach, far away in time. They start singing Echo Beach. I go, no, 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 not me. That's not me. You've got the wrong end up. So now you're also you're going to be on a on a cruise, the uh, 80s cruise. What What's it like on a cruise? Because you're you're playing and... If someone's annoying, you can't get away from them. <laughs> You're not going to jump off the boat. But if, what's it like when you play these 80s cruises? And do you guys, do a lot of artists, do you have a camaraderie? Okay, first of all, I've never done one. So it's, this is going to be all new to me. Uh, I've researched it as much as I possibly can. But however you cut it, you are on a moving vessel in the middle of the ocean. And there is no escape. Oh, I think it's, uh, um, I'm going to have to just uh, 
uh, I, you know, no pun intended, but I'm going to go with the flow. Okay. Now, now, when you're performing and when you're touring and playing, when do you have time to write new material, and are you constantly trying to write new material? Um, I'll make some notes. I have a, a little scratch pad, and I've got ideas for songs. A, a great idea or a great title is where it all begins for me. And then I will just sit down with the guitar and until my arms and my neck give out, I will just strum along and wait and hope for something to come together. And I'll have days where not a darn thing brings any buzz or goosebump or anything. And then another day where maybe three will come in one go. It's like they say in England, you're waiting for a bus and three come. There's there's nothing and then three come and so it's it's kind of it's it's like that you, yeah you have to wait for the inspiration but you got to make it happen as well it's like they say in in golf the more I practice the luckier I get now on your solo tour coming up as you see you can play some covers you can play some old music uh, some new music some mixture will you be telling stories too because audience seem to love that I guess I interviewed Graham Parker last week and he said how he you know going you know being so it's 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 sometimes scary but you know when you throw a story and people enjoy it are you someone who would tell stories when you're on stage I'm getting there I my problem is I I really do think and it's my problem with doing interviews as well that I just feel like every word that comes out is like who who cares everything I say you know I just feel like well, who would, who would care? Um, so, you know, we're, we're getting there. I'll, I'll dip my toe into the, uh, the, the anecdotal waters, <laughs> slide up the flagpole and see if anybody salutes it. But what? otherwise, I'm a little bit, uh, I hold back a bit on the boring stories. Well, I think that you, people would enjoy your stories. I've had an, a pleasure talking to you today. And I think that's something that, you know, it makes us, it, it, it's, I, maybe because I'm older. I always say I'm becoming one of those get off my lawn guys. But I'm like, <laughs> I, I like to hear stories because I, I love music so much. And I think me and my friends, you know, we'll go out and we'll just talk about music. And I think when an artist tells a story of where a song comes from or this or that, I think it really endears us because, you know, we grew up so much going to big, big concert venues and a lot of times now we enjoy smaller smaller intimate settings because i think it's because our age and we don't feel like dealing with the crowd but anyway i now now your all your website your website is katrinasweb.com it's a very nice website that has all your tour information right yes it has and twitter what's your twitter account i have no idea okay. I'll, I'll post it okay <laughs> And so, so you're, you're going to be in Fort Lauderdale. So at least you'll get out of that blistery winter. I mean, it's, so it's been really cold over there. I'm hating it. I walked out one day. It was like minus two with a wind chill factor. And after 20 years on the West Coast, I was freaking out. I mean, I grew up here, but it was nuts. What is it? I mean, how are you dealing with the cold back there? The, you know, this is, it's really nothing. The problem with it is that you can have day after day after day of gray. And it was kind of nice when it snowed and the blizzards came because everything is, even though it was the first of March, it was still like a winter wonderland. So that was a beautiful thing. But, you know, my dad was from Pennsylvania. He, When my mom passed away, my dad lived in East Berlin, Pennsylvania. You want to talk about cold? 
there's cold and then there's East Berlin, Pennsylvania. Okay. <laughs> well, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me. And your web is also your your Twitter is at Katrina's Web. So people follow Katrina. Go to at Katrina's Web. Also go to her website, Katrina. Where it's it's a uh, it's Katrina's Web dot com. She has a lot of great stuff on there. And uh, follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Also go to my website, CooperTalk.net. There's over 670 episodes on there. Also, you can email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. And don't forget my other website, stopthesalt.com. You know, when I had a heart problem a few years ago, I went out and I wrote a low-sodium cookbook. It's 120 recipes for one. Easy to make. No pictures to imitate you. No big long list of ingredients. I don't, if you don't have cumin, don't worry. I have no recipes with cumin, even though I personally now cook with cumin. It's a very good spice. So go there. You can also get it at Amazon. But if you get it at stopthesalt.com, you will get an autographed copy and I make more money. So people, go check out Katrina when she's on tour. If you're on a Florida cruise, be cool to her. Don't harass her because, you know, you're on a cruise. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and have a great day.